So my first week on the job, I was 52 years old at the time. Average age in the company was 26. All of a sudden, I'm working in a tech company for the first time. I'm twice the age of the average person. I am mentoring my boss, who's 21 years younger than me. That took some getting used to. As we get older, we think more holistically, more systemically. We are able to connect the dots. We're better at intuition, pattern recognition. All of that means, yes, in your 50s, you might be the person, as I was at Airbnb, who occasionally said, here's what I'm seeing, and being able to point out the blind spot of the company because everybody was so focused. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I'm very happy you're here, and I hope that today you've brought your listening caps and your thinking caps because there's no guest that embodies the kinds of things that I want to talk about on Crazy Money quite like today's guest, Chip Conley. Chip's had one of the most fascinating career journeys that I can think of, and now he is putting his considerable talents and treasure to work, helping other people find who they want to be in the back half of their lives. Let me tell you a little bit about his journey. In the mid-1980s, fresh out of Stanford Business School, Chip founded a company called Joie de Vivre Hotels, which was an owner and operator of boutique hotels. And over the next two decades and a half almost, Chip put all his love and his vision into this company. Then amidst the calamity of the Great Recession in 08, 09, Chip realized that his time with Joie de Vivre was drawing to an end. And he sold out at the bottom of the market in what was a very traumatic time of his life. And he tells us that story in this episode. And he began to reinvent himself. He started to look at who he was as a human being, as opposed to who he was as the brainchild behind this very cool, fashionable travel brand. Along the way, Chip started to write and to speak and to find ways to express his unique identity to the world. And then he stumbled into an opportunity to be of counsel, to be a sage to a CEO of a very young hospitality company that was called Airbnb. And he joined that company and counseled CEO Brian Chesky for years. And in so doing, accidentally stumbled upon yet another fortune while pursuing the opportunity to provide value from the perspective of a wise elder to this young tech entrepreneur. He's not coincidentally the author of several books, one that we talk in depth about called Wisdom at Work. He's also the founder of something that I think is really important. It's called Modern Elder Academy. It's a place where, as they describe it, Modern Elder Academy is a school and retreat center dedicated to helping people navigate midlife and beyond. They own retreat centers where you can go and evaluate who you want to be in the back half of your life. You've had a successful career up to this point, but for whatever reason, what you've done for the last couple of decades isn't feeling like what you want to do going forward. Modern Elder Academy and Chip's resources will help you navigate that next part of your life. I think what's important about Chip's journey is that it was not always just a straight line up and to the right, that it went through many ups and downs and changes in directions, changes in what his functional role was, changes in how he would answer the question, what do you do? Who are you professionally? Who his people were along the way on this journey? And the way in which he has rolled with the punches and dealt with what life, his career, and the markets have brought to him have led him to this place where he's really using that journey to help other people. I know you're going to find this story really, really interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chip Conley. Chip Conley, welcome to Crazy Money. Great to be here. Thank you, Paul. Chip, let's go back to the year 2008. How was your personal and professional life going? 
Let's jump into it, man. Oh, dude, you want to take me back to the darkest time of my life? Wow. <laughs> it was rough. So obviously, we all know about the Great Recession, which was sort of coming on. But I was a hotelier, and the hotel business is sort of a canary in the coal mine. You can sort of see the future economically. And in January 2008, I could just see, oh, geez, this is going to be a rough year. But it wasn't just that. I didn't really want to be doing that anymore. I'd been for 22 years the founder and CEO of my company, Joie de Vivre Hospitality, which was the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. based in San Francisco. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. I'd written another book and I loved writing books. And I was just like, oh, I want to do that instead. But then I could see, oh my God, I'm getting pulled back in. And then I had a foster son who it was an adult going to prison and I had long-term relationship ending and oh my God, everything that could go wrong was going wrong. And I, quite frankly, I was in a place where I didn't know what to do. I felt sort of like an idiot at life, especially as a business person. You know, I got through it, which I'm sure we'll talk about right now. It was a time that actually was an enormous wake-up call. I'm a hotelier. So wake-up call for a hotelier is a big deal. (laughs) I ultimately had a flatline experience that due to an allergic reaction to an antibiotic that was the ultimate wake-up call that said, okay, I got to change this. Let's talk about how important and how closely tied you were to the company that was going through such difficult times. You started Joie de Vivre. This is actually Google Translate, just to show me how poor my... Joie de Vivre. Oh, Joie de Vivre. That's how poor my <laughs> pronunciation is. This was your baby. The Joie de Vivre was your baby that you started from scratch and you had put your entire life into it for 22 yeah. years at this point, was yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I started the company a couple of years out of Stanford Business School and yeah, it was my identity. I now can look back and say, be careful of your identities because they get affixed to you. They're like a band-aid that will not go away. And so for 22 years from age 26 to age 48, my real primary identity in the world was founder and CEO of this boutique hotel company uh, with 52 boutique hotels. So the process of sort of disconnecting from that was going to be hard. And also as an entrepreneur, your own personal sense of satisfaction is so tied to your company. In fact, it's interesting that the word depression in psychology has a lot to do with the economic word depression. A person's personal, you know, psychological state can be a function of how the overall economy is doing and then how their company is doing if they're an entrepreneur. So long story short is I've been on this emotional roller coaster because my company had been on a financial roller coaster. I think one day when you have an NDE and near death experience, you wake up from it and you say, okay, <laughs> I might die tomorrow. Is this what I want to do today? And that's when I started to change. And so what did you do? Thank God. One of my closest friends, Vanda, is a life coach and leadership coach. And so I pretty much strapped her to my side and said, <laughs> the next two years is going to be hard. I'm going to figure out how to sell this company at the bottom of the Great Recession. I'm going to take a huge financial bath on this potentially relative to what I originally thought I would do. And more importantly, my sense of self-esteem and my sense of identity is just wrapped up in this. And I really need to figure out how to get through this unscathed. And, and during that time, Paul, between 2008 and 2010, I lost five male friends, three of them entrepreneurs, to suicide. So I would just say that I started the process of saying, who would be the great, who could I let adopt my company? <laughs> 
So I wanted a, a parent of the company that was going to you know, treat it well. Uh, we had 3,500 employees. My sister was the you know, VP of administration. So I had a lot of people there who I cared deeply about. But I also knew that I could no longer do this anymore. And it, it was not fair to the company for me to be in this position of feeling like the victim as the CEO. And so ultimately, two years later, we pulled off a sale. And I still owned a bunch of the hotels, the real estate, which was actually sort of good because that over time financially got better. But I really actually was able to take off the straitjacket that had sort of confined me. I loved it till I hated it. So it was a beautiful experience until my last two to three years. And that's when I really needed to get out of there. What was the process of unwinding your identity from the hotel like and unwinding the hotel's association with you? Yes, it goes both both ways. You're asking good questions. I appreciate your insights on this. So number one is I had two years of being able to prepare for this. I had a flatline experience in August of 2008 from an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. I had a broken ankle and a septic leg. During the next two years, I told almost nobody in the company that I was going to be planning a sale. But everybody knew the hotel business was gone to shit at this point. Oh, everybody knew we were, uh, yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no, nobody was unaware of how bad real yeah. estate-based businesses were in 2008. No, we were in awful shape. And people knew it, and people knew we were hurting for cash, and that I was running out of cash. And so all of that was known. Not many people knew I had an NDE. We sort of kept that relatively quiet. And then not many people knew I was actually starting to look at who could be our uh, a buyer for us. But I think during that two years, I was able to start to see who I was beyond my company. I went back to doing some photography that I hadn't done since college. And I loved writing. I had written my third book in 2007. And, and so I started thinking about my fourth book during this time. Now, it doesn't mean I wasn't focused full-time on trying to sell a business and run the business. It did mean, you know, in the crevices of my calendar, I had space to do other things. I also really deepened my friendships during that time and really realized how much I appreciated the fact that, you know, a lot of times a CEO and a founder of an entrepreneur is really bad at friendships. They just don't give it time. I had been good at friendships. There are a lot of things I'm not good at, but I've been really good at friendships. So when I was going through that hard time, I had a lot of friends who really wanted to be supportive. So I guess what I found was that my life was more multidimensional than I thought it was. And that gave me some sense of comfort that I was in the process of disconnecting. Now, the other side of this question that you all asked is, okay, but the world sees you as this. So I was able to disconnect from my identity over two years. So that by the time we announced it in June of 2010, major story in the Wall Street Journal, I had moved on. But then came the next piece, which I hadn't really planned for, which is, oh, but the world sees me as this. Oh, my employees see me as this. Right. Oh, owners that we manage hotels for sees me, sees me as this. And so it was like, okay, now I had to move from the personal side, which I think is the first thing to start with. You got to get the personal side right, to this, this part of me that said, okay, I need to give them comfort that this is good for the company. And I need to give them comfort that, yeah, if somebody used to treat me exceptionally well because I was the VIP CEO of this company and they didn't want to treat me well anymore, that's fine. That happened. I wasn't in the transactional relationship that they wanted. I was no longer their transaction partner. And so they didn't really necessarily need to be in my life. Perfectly fine. I think there was a part of me that also in the back of my mind said, 
I think my best years are still ahead of me. And that's a funny thing to say at age 48. Yeah. Or at age 50, when I actually sold the company. And at age 50, to say that my best years are still ahead of me and to feel it in my bones was, thankfully, I had that because, frankly, I don't think society necessarily instills that confidence in ourselves at age 50. So in 2011, if I had asked you, what do you do? How would you have answered that question? I would have said, I'm a writer. I'm a writer and a speaker. And in fact, in you know January 2012, my next book came out called Emotional Equations, a New York Times bestseller. And so I was gestating that book during that time. And I was speaking a lot. You know, I was giving, I don't know, 50 to 75 speeches a year. That's what I was doing. I was also sort of incubating a new, a new business idea focused around the world's best festivals. And I called Fest 300. And if you'd asked me what my identity was at that time, I would have said, well, I'm a writer and a speaker. And so what's the process like of starting to kind of look at yourself on an organic level and say, who am I absent all my business accomplishments, absent everything on my resume? Who am I and what do I want to bring to life in this next phase, in these next 20 years from 50 to 70? I did something that we now do. We'll talk about this in a few minutes, I think, at the Modern Elder Academy. Yeah, for sure. I did something called the Great Midlife Edit. So I, <laughs> the Great Midlife Edit. And this is actually something you can do at home. You don't have to come to Baja. To- you scrubbed all the unflattering parts of your life away from your memory. <laughs> no, it wasn't even that. Paul Simon calls it the rewrite. The rewrite. So basically what I did was I, I started to ask myself, what are the mindsets or identities or ways of seeing myself that might have served me up to this point that aren't serving me anymore? Mm. And so what would be some examples of that, you know, at that time? Well, one of them was like, I have to be the hero. So when you're for 24 years, the CEO of a company, I mean, not everybody has this mindset, but for me, my mindset as the CEO is I had to be the hero that pull the rabbit from the hat, but that was tiring. And so I felt, okay, don't need to be the hero anymore. Okay. What else? Well, one of my mindsets is that after age 50, I can't learn something new. So, okay, that's a mindset that I want to get rid of. So I started actually coming up with a list of all these. And then with my friend Vanda, the coach, we went to a little fire pit and I read all of the things that I was letting go of, threw it in the fire. And then I turned around and said to her, and I said, here's what I'm replacing it with. And I had a bunch of things that I said, these are the things that are important to me. I want to spend more time writing. I want to actually study the world's best festivals and maybe create a a business around that. I want to actually start mentoring younger hospitality leaders. I started my company in my mid-20s. I bet there's other hospitality leaders I could help. And so that's what I put out into the world. And, you know, lo and behold, (laughs) some of those things started to materialize. How did they materialize? I did start a business called Fest 300. It was a passion project that never made much money. But it was a project that allowed me to go for one year around the world to go to the 36 festivals in 16 countries. Festivals of all kinds, not just me. I was a founding board member of Burning Man, uh, the Burning Man board, a nonprofit board. So I had a lot of ins in the festival world, but I, these were not just music festivals or parties. They were religious pilgrimages, et cetera. So that was beautiful. I got to write that book, Emotional Equations, which was beautiful. And then out of left field, I got a call one day and the call came from a guy named Brian Chesky. Brian was the co-founder and CEO of a company called Airbnb, which a little over nine years ago when he reached out to me, I was like, I didn't really know who they were. I was based in San Francisco 
and I was a hotelier, but I still was not that clear on who Airbnb was. So how big were they at the time when he reached out? There were about 150 employees. Mm, so small. Well, it depends on your definition of small. Relative to what it has become. Oh my God, yeah. It was tiny. It was tiny. It was one one hundredth the size of it is today in terms of revenues. So he comes to me and he says, I would love to have you be my mentor and I'd love to have you be in charge of strategy for the company and hospitality and you can mentor all three of us founders. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I had asked for mentorship opportunities. Here's one. But what was fascinating about that was I really didn't realize what I was getting myself into. I loved Brian's energy and I could see how curious he was, but I didn't know that I'd be joining a tech company. So my first week on the job, I was 52 years old at the time. Average age in the company was 26. Brian was 21 years younger than me. All of a sudden, I'm working in a tech company for the first time. I'm twice the age of the average person. I am mentoring my boss, who's 21 years younger than me. That took some getting used to. But I got to tell you, within a few months, or within a few weeks, I was like, okay, I'm doing this. Within a few months, Brian had said to me, Chip, you know, we hired you for your knowledge. What we've gotten is your wisdom. You are our modern elder. And I was like, I don't want to be a modern elder. That sounds like I'm an old man. <laughs> he said, well, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And I said, wow, if that's what a modern elder is, then I will be that. And that's what happened. So I helped the founders steer their rocket ship to the point where it is now the by far the most valuable hospitality brand in the world. So what a journey. My first day of Facebook, I was 38 years old in May of 2007. And I sat down with probably a 22 and a half year old engineer and he walked me through the photos product. And I said, this is really great. Can I get your business card? And he looked at me, <laughs> he looked at me like I was the old man that I was and said, yeah, I could give you my business card or you could just like friend me since that's sort of what we do here. You know? And I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> it's a generational thing. I got to learn how to figure this thing out, you know? How long were you there, Paul? Four and a half years. Yeah. What were the emotions that you were feeling during that time? I felt old for the first time in my career. Yeah. And that's a weird feeling to have because I had worked at Yahoo as a salesperson, individual contributor until 2004, having started at a place called launch.com, which became Yahoo Music. And then I left in 2005, did comedy for two years and then went back into the tech world with Facebook. And so I had been out of the market for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And then I came in at 38 and, and you know, this company was run by 21, 22 year olds. Yeah. And so I was a significantly older person at the time I went back in and it was, it was kind of a head snap, you know, it was like, oh, okay, I gotta, like the old rules, the way Yahoo worked was very, very different than the way Facebook worked. And I was the one who needed to adjust. Yeah. And I think, so there's a lot of conflicting emotions. There's like, okay, am I an idiot? Am I the dumbest person in the room? Uh, and then there's times like, oh my God, these people, I, I wish I could like sit them down and tell them how the world works. But the last thing you want to do as the older person is to, to diminish them by saying, this is how the world works. Because, you know, war stories are not wisdom. And so, but my experience was really fascinating because I realized that mentorship in the modern age is about mutual mentorship. You know, the physics of wisdom does not just flow from old to young. It flows from young to old as well and everybody in between. And so I mentored over the course of my seven and a half years at Airbnb, four years full-time, three and a half years as a pretty significant strategic advisor. I mentored over a hundred people there, but I got to tell you, almost every single one of them mentored me. 
So that's why I was a mentor and an intern at the same time. And, uh, you know, we were both better off for it. What kind of perspective do you think that you provided for some of those younger employees? And, and what did you take away from them? I like to call it the EQ for DQ Trade Alliance. <laughs> if they had said to me on the front end, Chip, we want you to come and bring your emotional intelligence, I would have said, okay, I'll do it. But no one said that. But at the end of the day, that's really what I was able to bring is the understanding of humans. And as a leader, that's pretty important, you know, because you're not managing bots, you're managing humans and helping people to see that, like for Brian, if there's somebody in our leadership meeting that you know is going to be a critic of this thing you're going to present, go and spend a half hour with them before the meeting, like a couple days before the meeting, let them digest it. You know, don't have it be at the meeting where they hear about it for the first time and they're going to just be the critic. That's a a leadership wisdom that comes from emotional intelligence. And so in many ways, what I was able to offer on many different levels, whether it was how are we going into communities and, and trying to be different than Uber, for example, in terms of, yes, we're a disruptor, but we're not that kind of disruptor. So what's the emotional intelligence of building a culture and building a reputation and a brand around that? So EQ is what I could offer. DQ was what they offered, digital intelligence, not Dairy Queen, but digital intelligence. And digital intelligence basically meant I understood everything from how many functions I have on my, my iPhone that I didn't know that could, <laughs> that could serve me to like, you know, what is UX and UI and how important is that to a company like Airbnb to literally how do I understand digital intelligence from the venture capitalist perspective? You know, I'd been a longtime entrepreneur, but I never raised any money or had to deal with venture capitalists because they don't want to invest in hotels, uh, bricks and mortar. So I learned a lot from them as well. And I think that, but I also served as a secretary of state for the company. That was Brian's. Brian said, listen, <laughs> you're our secretary of state. So frankly, if there was a challenge going on in the world, guess what? Send ship out there. And that was actually in my mid fifties, part of the reason why I had to move from full-time to strategic advisor because I may have been the most traveled Airbnb executive in the whole company. And doing that in your mid-20s and mid-30s is one thing, but doing that in your mid-50s is a different one. So that's why ultimately I said, listen, you originally wanted me to come be a part-time mentor. Within three weeks, I was a full-time 15-hour a week, 15-hour a day, not 15-hour a week person. Now let's move back to 15 hours a week. You spent a decade and a half building a company that was highly personal to you. And then the outcome did not meet the expectations that you'd probably mm. embraced for a long time. Did having that experience help you help you help the younger employees with the messianic zeal that comes with startup uh, mission? You know, what founders have to have to get money from venture capitalists is hubris. Yeah. What they really need to run their company is humility. And it's that hubris to humility journey that I did my best to help guide the founders on. I'm really proud. You know, the founders are still, these three founders are still running that company. There's never been a company that grew to this valuation that still had its three founders 15 years, 14 years into it, still running the business. It just doesn't happen. And so I would say one of my legacies there is how do we help these three communicate better and realize that each of them has a talent, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the good news is they were all, they all had 
strong competencies. So they had a reason to be there. But yes, the, the humility of understanding that you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days. And if you're going to be a disruptor of an industry like hospitality, or if you're going to disrupt neighborhoods, or you're going to do a lot of the things that we were doing, disrupt convention business because all the conventioners are staying in Airbnbs, not in the convention hotel, we better have a certain amount of humility and openness to build relationships. Otherwise, we are going to be the thing everybody wants to kill. Hey, everybody. You know what I'm trying to accomplish by producing the Crazy Money Podcast is to help people, myself very much included, reflect on and remain aware of the things that provide us with contentment and meaning in life. And I think that this week's episode with Chip Conley is a perfect example of the kinds of conversations that I want to help catalyze, normalize, and spread to as many people that are going through these kinds of midlife dilemmas as possible. So a couple of things. Number one, if you feel this angst inside yourself, this yearning to change careers or to shift your life balance towards something that feels more authentic and a greater expression of who you are as a human being, check out what they're up to at Modern Elder Academy. I don't get a commission or anything like that. I just think what they're up to is worthwhile. And there's not a lot of places where you can have these kinds of conversations. Number two, if you see in your friends, people who are struggling through this same dilemma, please share this episode with them. You'll not only be helping Crazy Money fulfill its mission, but you'll really be providing an invaluable service to a friend who needs your help, who needs your ear, who needs some perspective at an important time of life. Thanks so much. My wife and I are watching the Showtime show Super Pumped, which is all about Uber. Have you had a chance to see some of those episodes? No, but I'm watching We Crashed right now. Um, <laughs> She's watching are, that without me during the day. Oh, yeah. So I've not, <laughs> not done Super Pumped, but I am doing We Crashed. And let's, okay, so I'm going to tell a quick story. I've not told this in sort of a media venue, so I'm going to just say it for a second. So Adam Newman was, in the later days of his time at WeWork, was deeply selling Brian at Airbnb on the idea of some kind of partnership collaboration, like a major one. I won't go into the details of it, but just Adam was in a sales mode. And if you know Adam, Adam is like a super salesperson, questions around his ethics and about his ability to like understand the truth. And whoa, serious Messiah complex in that guy. So I was at this point an advisor and I was just helping. And I, you know, I was not in any of these meetings with Adam, but I heard a lot about the meetings with Adam from other people, as well as from Brian. I also did some reading up on Adam. So I was in a meeting with, with the founders, as well as the top three or four other people in the company. And Brian was trying to decide, are we going to move forward? And I was like, so Brian, what do you think of Adam? Do you enjoy spending time with him? And Brian sort of hemmed and hawed. Well, not really. I mean, I, he's sort of crazy. I mean, he's sort of, he's, <laughs> he's sort of crazy and he's like got a little bit of a Messiah thing. I mean, he's, he said, okay, tell me a little bit more. And he goes on a little bit more and he, he said, you know, he's likable. He said, he said good things too. Let's be clear. Uh, you know, it wasn't just bad things. Brian said good things as well. But I did say to him at some point, do you want me to repeat back to you what you've just said? If you were an investor investing in this business, knowing that this is the person leading the business, the person you're going to have to deal with, would you invest in that business? Mm. And he looked at me like with that sort of like, look like big saucer eyes, like, oh, and hadn't thought about that. Because I think what he was looking at was from a strategic perspective, there was a lot of logic that the two companies might work well together. And there were a lot of investors, you know, some, some common investors amongst the two companies. And 
some, and maybe just some sense like, okay, this would be a big story to talk about. But yeah, what a big mess to unravel if we had done that. So I would just say that's part of what a modern elder does as well, is provide some unvarnished insight. I mean, Bill Campbell was quite famous in Silicon Valley as the ultimate coach to Mark Zuckerberg and, and Steve Jobs and you know, the Google founders. And there's an element of like, okay, you know, when you can get to a place where you can just say something like that to Brian, like I did, whereas other people in the company might've been sort of hemming and hawing a little bit. It was like, that's something often that a younger leader needs. Well, let's talk about what it's like to be a 50 year old in the workplace today. Why do so many 50 year olds feel out of place in the corporate world? Well, I mean, let's start with saying in the United States, we have a serious issue of ageism. And the ageism is not just in the workplace. It's how we look. It's how advertisers promote and advertise things. And so we have a sort of a cult of youth. So if there's a cult of youth, that means that that's relevant in the workplace too. But I think the other thing to look at is, you know, Peter Drucker, the management theorist in 1959 said, the future of work is all about knowledge workers. And he was right. Seven of the 10 most valuable companies in the world today are tech companies. So every company wants to look like a tech company. Every company wants to have a digital strategy that's really brilliant. And there's a a natural bias toward younger people in terms of thinking who is going to lead that digital strategy or the execution of a digital strategy. And therefore, there's often a thought that, okay, if you're 50 years old or older, Number one is you're not particularly savvy around digital. You don't understand the language, et cetera. And therefore, maybe you're just a little too old school. So all of that works against people. But let's also recognize that the people who created the internet were baby boomers. So it's not like everybody who's 50 and older doesn't know about technology. I mean, there's lots and lots of engineers. But I think what I've seen is the following. And Arthur Brooks' new book, From Strength to Strength. That's how I heard about you, Chip. Oh, dude, there you go. So from strength to strength, Arthur Brooks wrote about me in the book. And, you know, he's a good friend. He's a huge fan of Modern Elder Academy, which we'll get to. Bottom line is, Arthur just said, listen, you know, as you get older, you don't have to be the technical wizard. You might have been the technical wizard in your 20s as an engineer. But when you get into your 50s, you're going to be the conductor of the orchestra. You're going to have people who are specialists and experts in a variety of things but your crystallized intelligence gets better with age. And your fluid intelligence is what's great when you're younger. It's like, you know, problem solving, focus, et cetera. As we get older, we think more holistically, more systemically. We're able to connect the dots. We're better at intuition, pattern recognition. All of that means, yes, in your 50s, you might be the person, as I was at Airbnb, who occasionally said, here's what I'm seeing, and being able to point out the blind spot of the company because everybody was so focused. If I remember the logic or the explanation clearly, our fluid intelligence is what leads us to be great mathematicians in our 20s and to be great counselors and historians in our 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah, counselors, historians, coaches, and strategists, futurists. I mean, frankly, the best-known futurists in the world are usually in their 50s or later. And they're not even going to be around to see that future (laughs) at some point. So, yes, I think knowing that there's the opportunity to evolve in terms of your skill set and then helping companies see, as David Epstein showed in his book, Range, that generalists 
have a value in the modern workplace. We don't only need specialists. We don't only need the people who actually have the expertise in a particular area, because if you create a company like that, you have a lot of silos and it's the generalists who actually can help synthesize all of that and make it work together. But is it realistic to think that everybody who's 50 can be an elder at work, can play that no. role? Let's just start with the word elder. So elderly means the last five or 10 years of your life. Mm-hmm. Elder means a relative term. You're older than other people. So you can be an elder, but you can be just an awful elder. Or you can just be an older. You're just an older, right. not an elder. Right, right, yeah. The real question I think you're asking is, is there value in an organization to have an elder and how do you embody being an elder? And I would call it a modern elder because I don't, we, we just use the word elder alone. It does have a connotation of, oh, we're in charge and all the power rests with old people. And I don't think that's right or smart. And so a modern elder is going to be this curious and wise person, the combination of the alchemy of the two. So yes, not everybody can be that. What's the path to getting there? Well, I wrote a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder that helps people to understand how to become an elder. But I think a lot of it has to do with a willingness to learn something new and be curious. That is something that a lot of people over 50 think they don't need to do. But yes, you have to be a lifelong learner or what I call a long life learner. So let's say I'm 50 years old. I've been moderately to very successful, but the work I've been doing for the past 25 years doesn't feel super authentic to me anymore. How do I figure out what to do with myself? You come to the Modern Elder Academy. Whoa, there we go. (laughs) How's that for a segue, Chip? That that was not exactly (laughs) what you were looking for, but that is why we have over 2,000 alumni from 33 countries who've come to our campus in Baja and soon to be two campuses in the Santa Fe, New Mexico area. Let's take a step back. What's going on with me? Because I see this everywhere. I saw it myself, you know, earlier than I'm seeing in other people, but like from 40 two to whatever, 60 years old, you know, and I've had Laura Karstensen from the Stanford Longevity Center on here before. And she talks about how the fact like, look, we're going to live till we're 90 or a hundred, a lot of us, right? So to think that we're going to graduate from college with all the knowledge we need and do that job for 60 years is kind of ridiculous, right? So what's going on in us in middle age where we're like, gosh, what's got me here isn't going to get me home from from a satisfaction standpoint. Well, let's start by saying if you're 54 and you're going to live till 90, let's say, you are only halfway through your adult life. You have 36 years of adulthood behind you starting at age 18, and you have 36 years of adulthood ahead of you. Most 54-year-olds don't think of their life that way. And when you start to think of your life that way, you move maybe from a fixed to a growth mindset and are more willing to try something that you might not be very good at, but you need to actually try it out to see if it's something you could get good at. What's happening in midlife? Let's start with that. There's something called the U-curve of happiness. Gotten a lot of social science research, you know. John Rausch was on here too. He was. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. I love the book and love his theory, which shows that basically from about age 22 to 47 and a half, 47.2 to be exact, people on average are, their life satisfaction is declining. Why is that? Well, disappointment equals expectations minus reality. Right, yeah. So there's a lot of expectations in our 20s and 30s. And it's around mid-40s that we start to see, well, I'm not going to be president of the United States. Oh, I'm, you know, I thought I married my soulmate. Not so much. (laughs) Uh, My kids are just awful. 
I'm now a sandwich generation. I'm taking care of my parents while I'm taking care of my kids. There's a lot going on. Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, and Richard Rohr, famous uh, Christian mystic, both say the first half of your life is accumulating, and the second half of your life is editing. And part of the reason that great midlife edit is important is because there's an edit that needs to happen around midlife. And it's sort of saying, what's not working anymore? But also Carl Jung and Richard Rohr have said also the following, the first half of your life, adult life, is your operating system is your ego. And the second half of your adult life, your operating system is your soul. And it's around 45 to 50 that something's starting to shift. It may be shifting inside of you. It may be this yearning for a meaning and purpose you didn't have before. It may be wanting to get rid of some of the roles and identities and obligations that just don't work for you anymore. That is the process. And some people use a coach. Some people use books. Some people go to the Modern Elder Academy as their way to say, okay, I'm going to repurpose myself. I think I pulled this from the book, Wisdom at Work, but I may have just written it down as a note. But the question I found myself asking, and I think a lot of people find themselves asking, is how can I find work that is an expression of who I am? Yeah. Well, it's not hard. First of all, let's talk about the word purpose. Purpose has almost become like a possession in American culture. If you don't have a purpose, you sort of feel like, oh, shit, what's wrong with me? I don't have a purpose. Uh, Everybody else has a purpose. Well, you can't have the noun if you don't do the verb. So start by being purposeful. Ask yourself the question, at what in my life or in what in the landscape of where I live and what I do, at what would I feel purposeful? What would give me a sense of purpose? So instead of thinking of it as a possession that you somehow don't have, focus on the verb and the action, the doing of something that actually would make you feel purposeful. I had this conversation with a lawyer, a lawyer friend of mine who is mid-50s and just hates being a lawyer. He's hated being a lawyer, frankly, since his mid-30s, um, but he just kept doing it because of law school bills and you know, he had a family to raise. And so he's in his mid fifties, he's done fine. But now he's so, his momentum about being a lawyer, he's now at the point in being a lawyer, where it's actually better. He doesn't have to work quite as hard. He's a partner, and, but he hates it. <laughs> right. And so we sat down and I just said, so what gets you excited? Like, what is it that you're passionate about? And he talked about, you know, he's on the board, the school board, and he loves that in his, you know, suburban community. And he loves like making a difference. Yeah, we talked a little bit about politics and activism. He loves that. And, and we talked about a couple other things. And I said, like, so who are the people you most admire? He started talking about who he most admired. And they were not lawyers or they were lawyers who had actually moved out of law. And by the end of an hour conversation with him, he started to, to see that the thing he really would love to do and frankly, what led him to law school back in his 20s, early 20s, was he would love to be in government service. He would actually, whether it's running for office or it's actually in the nonprofit kind of philanthropic service or working in the government. And I said, okay, so you have gotten to a stage in your life where you can do that. When people come into Modern Elder Academy, how do you walk them through this process? How do you, they're raising their hand by coming there, right? They, yeah. they know they want to explore this and or need help of some kind. So what's that experience like? Let me give the background backstory. So I was writing this book, Wisdom at Work, down here in Baja. 
like an hour north of Cabo San Lucas on the beach. And I had this Baja Aha one day. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Cabo Wabo like, and Baja Aha. Yeah, there you go. And I was said, listen, why is it that we don't have a midlife wisdom school? Why don't we have a place where people come and like cultivate and harvest what they've learned and then think about how they might actually apply it in new ways in their life. I call it same seed, different soil. And so we have three ways people do that. One is through our workshops here at Baja Campus and students in Santa Fe. Secondly is we have sabbatical sessions for people actually can come and do longer stays and lighter programming. And then we have online programs. The things that we really help people to start seeing is this idea of the great midlife edit. The thing I did for myself, I have now, I do with other people. And how do you help people to see that just because they have momentum and my friend did as a lawyer doesn't mean you have to be a lawyer. You have skills, same seed. You have these skills. You have built some wisdom around it, but now it's maybe time to repot yourself in a different environment, a different habitat. And so helping people to see, first of all, what is it that they have to offer to the world? I never thought when I was with Brian and the Airbnb guys, that my emotional intelligence was worth anything. It was like, it, it was something I was so familiar with and I knew so well, I didn't look at it and say, oh, this is worth something. Rob Goldman, you know, at Facebook is a senior marketing leader. And I remember he said that to me, he says, like at Facebook, I don't even realize that some of the things that I just take for granted are things that are like huge, you know, learnings for people who are 15 years younger than me. So getting clear on what you have to offer and then getting clear on what you feel passionate about. And so that is part of what we help people to do, not just in their career, but also in their personal life. You know, sometimes what a person needs when they come down here is like, you know what? I'm in a 30-year marriage that I think is done. We're empty nesters. We don't have anything in common anymore. I think it's time for us to have that conversation. And so that may be what the experience coming here does. So if your spouse says they're coming to the Modern Elder Academy, know that it doesn't necessarily mean that they're coming back to say they want a, they want a divorce. <laughs> Stacey, you can't go. What do you encourage people or what do you offer them about like, I retired at 42 from Facebook and thought, oh, look, I'm done. I've got enough money to do what I want to do. And then of course I felt bored and lonely. I, I didn't have a place where I belonged and I didn't feel useful. And I realized that if I want to rededicate myself to something, I have to change the metrics that I've been using up to this point in my life. Which metrics would you encourage people to change as they start to think about this back half career and life plan? Well, what I would start by asking is, have you been living your life based upon someone else's success script? So what's a success script? So there's a thing, something called a money script. The money script's gotten a lot of press and it's like, okay, money script is what your parents or your community, what you grew up with, that sort of defined how you think of money. But a success script is sort of similar. It's basically, how do you define success in your life? And what you need to know is there's a hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic treadmill basically is the following the moment you actually have gotten the job, the money, the wife, the accolades that you were looking for in your little paltry hand, in the palm of your hand, it doesn't look as good as it did when it was out there on the horizon. And it's that process of actually accomplishing it that sometimes is what gives you the, the sense of success. And then you actually get there and, oh, wow, okay. Now I look at the new shiny object. So I would just start by saying, what defines success for you? And, uh, you know, look at, come up with eight or 10 different things. You know, it could be fame, could be money, could be admiration from others. It could be making a difference in the world, whatever it is. 
Look at your values, for example, and then start to stack rank them. Ask yourself, what was most important to you in your 20s? And now if you're, let's say, you're in your 50s or 40s, what's important to you now? And then how are you altering your life to adjust to this new set of values? And what are those things that you hear come up most often, the values in the 50s that people want to pursue? Well, I think, you know, assuming that we do start to shed our ego um, in our midlife, I see people being a little bit less focused on fame and fortune and showing off. Just when we get comfortable in our own skin, it starts to sag. Um, But, you know, (laughs) there's an element of like, Screw you, gravity. Yeah, screw you, gravity. and, And screw you, the world, in terms of who I'm trying to impress. I think that that's a big one. The desire to connect your sense of self-worth to how the world sees you. That is a deal with the devil because you have no control over how the world's going to see you. Yes, I've been a magician at creating an amazing personal brand and reputation. But if I get too wrapped up in trying to you know, impress people, then I actually lose track of, frankly, my soul and what I can offer the world that ultimately has a much bigger impact on other people. So I would say, start by saying, what's the success script that, you know, that's more important to you? And what are the things that you just need to get rid of? And for me, some of that was like, I don't want to spend time with people I don't really enjoy anymore. Amen. I mean, I just, I did that for a long, a long time. I did, and I did it. No, I went to Stanford Business School. I went to Stanford Undergrad. Okay, you use the networking. Da, 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 da. I was in YPO. I liked YPO, but I didn't love being in YPO. And I didn't need the social experience of YPO. I already had a pretty active social life. So I still do young presidents organization things as a speaker, but I don't do the social part of it, even though that's the main reason a lot of people do it. I'm different. So... Dr. Phil Pizzo at Stanford, he ran Stanford Medical Center for a long time. He, started, he created the Stanford Distinguished Careers Institute. He's shown in his research, there's three key things people need after age 50, purpose, wellness, and community. And often when they retire, as you learned, you're like, where's your purpose? You know, if you're no longer working, where's your community? If you're no longer working. And here's the weird part, the wellness piece. Frankly, when people actually retire, their wellness falls off the cliff. Right. Which doesn't make any sense because there's a lot of time to not work out. That's right. Exactly. You don't, you're missing this. You're missing the discipline in your life. That's right. And the structure. And so, you know, what I would say to people and what I do say to people is like, do an inventory of those three and just know that frankly, there is something called social wellness. And that is when you actually link your own personal wellness with your sense of creating an emotional I don't know, emotional insurance in your life. People who you love and care for. The long-standing longitudinal study from Harvard, George Valiant study, basically said pretty clearly that the number one ingredient for happy, healthy, longer lives is connection and relationships. Yep. What do people say besides I need to end my marriage? What, what do people say when they leave Modern Elder Academy? What are they thinking when I assume they're inspired and invigorated? Of course, they're inspired and invigorated. But the key then is like, okay, how do you keep it going? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why we have alumni programs and all kinds of things that people can be participating in, in the regional chapters, 26 regional chapters around the world. So the number one thing they, I think they try to do is say, okay, how do I keep this sense of possibility of what's next for me going? And- their cohort of 20 people stays in touch, the Zoom calls. 
But I think a lot of it is that. And a lot of it is really, and then maybe creating an accountability partner and says, okay, I've said I'm going to start my own business. I thought at age 52 that I can't start my own business because, you know, frankly, you're over the hill at 52. Well, guess what? You know, 50% of the businesses in the United States are owned by people 55 and older. A true stat, you know? So, yeah. But now how do I actually take the steps to get it done? And that's what we try to help with people because generally speaking, people go to some, you know, workshop or personal growth retreat center and then they go home and it's like, oh, now what? You know, and, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was on something called the Esalen Institute uh, board for 10 years. I taught there for a long time. I just know that unfortunately a lot of places do a great job while that you're there and then you just sort of like on your own afterwards. So we keep people in the fold. So the one of the things that a lot of people don't know, if you go to the Modern Elder Academy website, uh, modernelderacademy.com, there's scholarships. I created MEA and I don't pay myself a thing. And I built the campus. We're building two more campuses now. I do it because I really want people to feel like they've got a place to go to actually reimagine their life. I lost five friends, you know, in the Great Recession to, to suicide. So over half of the people who've come to MEA have been on some form of financial aid or scholarship, which means that we have a lot of socioeconomic diversity in our cohorts. And um, we like to say wisdom is not taught, it's shared. And so when you can share that wisdom in a group of uh, people who are often vastly different than you, um, you're going to learn more from them than you will from just your best friends. All right, last question, and I'll let you go. You wrote in the book, Wisdom at Work, that as an introverted teenager, you blossomed by collecting accomplishments. What do you collect today? Oh, I collect memories. I collect the memories of and the relationships that I've built having had 2000 alumni come through here, knowing that I'm the George Bailey. It's a wonderful life. Remember George <laughs> Bailey? Of course, yeah. You know, Clarence, the angel says, you know, look at what it would be like if you hadn't been here. Potterville. And I, I have a sort of a George Bailey glow because I collect the memories and the relationships of these people who are, you know, transforming their life as a result of a business I created. Well, Chip, this has been a lot of fun to get to know you a little bit. Where can our listeners find out more about you and Modern Elder Academy? ModernElderAcademy.com and then MeetChipConley.com, C-O-N-L-E-Y. And then I have a daily blog, daily blog called Wisdom Well, and it's on the Modern Elder Academy site, or you can just Google uh, or Yahoo, Chip Conley uh, Wisdom Well, and you'll find it. And you get a, a free, it's a free thing, and you get a, an email from me each morning with a, a microdose of wisdom. A microdose of wisdom. Outstanding. Uh, we'll put links to those in the show notes. Chip, thanks for joining. Thank you, Paul. Wow, man. Chip Conley is a cool cat. I'm so excited that I got a chance to talk to him, get to know him a little bit, and to share his story with you, because I think it's a great lesson for all of us of what is possible despite the ups and downs of a career. Think about it. This guy put all his love, all his vision, and all the hours of, of his years and decades into this company, Joie de Vivre, that he built up with great love and care and stewardship, and then and then life and the economy kicks him in the teeth in 2010, and he has to take a hit on the sale of, of that company. And it must have hurt really, really bad to do that. And yet he found the strength to move forward and to continue to evolve who he was as a person and as a profession. And by being open to the Airbnb opportunity that came along, and remember, this is before anybody knew what Airbnb had the potential to become, 
Uh, he probably had the biggest financial windfall of his life, one that he certainly hadn't anticipated while he's out there writing books and speaking. And then he takes those winnings and invests them into a mission where he can help other people really find who they are and work with them through this transition from their old selves into their new selves for years 50 through 75 or whatever the numbers are. I think it's a great lesson for us. Let's talk about some takeaways. First of all, be open. You know, if Chip hadn't been open to talking to Brian Chesky and to saying, yeah, let's go figure out what's there uh, by me contributing in a way that might not be traditionally definable in the workplace, he would have missed out on a giant opportunity and Airbnb would have missed out. So be open. Number two, it's okay to be scared. Going through a transition where you are potentially sacrificing a big paycheck, a reliable job, reliable status, benefits, all these things is a scary proposition. But you're going to be so much better off if you give yourself the permission to engage in the questions, who do I want to be? What kind of work do I want to fill my days with? How do I find work that is an expression of who I am? It will make you happier. You will be a better father, mother, husband, wife, brother, sister, coworker, whatever. And you wake up and you look at the clock and, and you feel excited about what you're going to do that day. It will change your life. I promise you. It wasn't easy for me to make this transition. It hurt a lot in the beginning. But over time, as I just said, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. These are the things I care about and I'll figure it out. Those things are now starting to pay off in ways I couldn't have anticipated then. Lastly, change your metrics, change your success script. You're not going to have the big salary prestigious title, which are basically you know the midlife equivalents of all the, the stickers on our conduct reports and report cards that we got as kids. You're not going to have those for a while. But if you focus on getting better, on serving other people through the passions that you have, you will find a way to turn those into value for the world and the world will then compensate you back. Don't know how, don't know how long it's going to take, but in time, it will pay off in ways that you probably can't even anticipate at this time. All right, there you have it. I hope you really enjoyed it. Again, if this episode meant anything to you, please share it with friends who would benefit from listening to Chip's message and the general conversations that we have here on Crazy Money. Next week, we will be back with Paul Shervish, who is a a professor at Boston College. He is one of the co-authors of a report called The Joys and Dilemma of Wealth, which is a study of very, very affluent families who spoke frankly about the best parts of having money and some of the things that weren't as positive. Most importantly, how does money affect their children? All that next week on Crazy Money. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. 